and welcome to One and Done TV. I am your co-host, Ian Hamilton. And I am John Polking, a 30-year-old man about to be talking about 15-year-old girls. For the second time, as we have already reviewed this show, <laughs> uh, when we did it in 2015. This is the podcast where we review television shows that were canceled after one season, or in some cases, in fact, in this case, canceled during their run. Isn't that right, John? That is right. We are putting on our best flannel and sort of moping over the graves of these shows, figuring out what they did, what they left behind, and ultimately what made them one and done. Today, we are talking about arguably one of the most celebrated one-season wonders of TV history, uh, my so-called life. But before we go back to high school, let's talk about what we're watching now. Ian, what is something that you have recently consumed? I saw Megan on uh, Friday. audience. It's called Mathrigan. Yeah, okay. Uh, we can all play that joke till the cows come home, John. I'm sure you're the first one to make it. That's what I said to the box office person when I also saw Mithrigan. And Did you? Uh, yeah, they did not smile. No. And they were like, you're the 30th person to say that today, sir. And all of them look just like you. You are not unique. It was a real downer uh, to go into the movie. But I don't know about you. I had a blast during that movie. Oh, I loved it. It was a lot of fun. It was more comedy than it was horror, you know? It felt like a Shaun of the Dead thing where, okay, we've talked about this with Baby Driver, too, where, like, Edgar Wright has a very incredible understanding of how action movies are made. So he can just, like, you know, action movies go A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And this movie hits all those horror notes, but it's actually very funny. Mm -hmm. Right. And I even go as far as to say touching. There was one scene in it that and I don't know if like they're just so good at manipulating me at this point. I don't know how they do it. It's never happened to me before. There was a scene and it was the beginning of the second act. And I think you'll know what I'm talking about. That was so sweet and so ridiculous at the same time that I cried while I laughed. Oh, are you talking about the one like in the testing room when they were yes. showing Megan's capabilities? Yeah, I get that. Yeah. I literally, I turned to the guy next to me who was having a blast. He loved, actually, he laughed throughout the movie and then walked out and was like, glad I didn't spend, uh, I have my... Alamo pass and I didn't Ugh. just give money directly to the movie. I was like, what are you talking about, dude? You loved it. He was, <laughs> but uh, I turned to him and I was like, I don't know how they just did it, but I cried and laughed at the same time. Like literally I was laughing and I felt it well up inside of me. And I was like, this is movie manipulation at its height. I've never felt this way before. I don't even know my personal life. <laughs> you haven't uh, clearly been sung to uh, in a really creepy way while you are having an emotional breakdown. That is, I think, key to that moment. And while the movie acknowledges that this is like such an over-the-top ridiculous moment, in the reality, the character is a very sweet moment. And my brain exploded when the two of those things crashed um, together. 
What about you, John? What are you watching? Well, since we are about to discuss the beginning of Jared Leto's career, I wanted to talk about a recent Jared Leto project. The end of Jared Leto's career. And I've got three words for you, bud. It's Morbin time. I watched Morbius. It's not good. Oh, it's quite bad. Yeah. I'm very much a superhero completionist, so even when I saw the trailer for it, I was like, I'm probably going to end up seeing this movie in some capacity. And then it was on Netflix, and they were doing it for How Did This Get Made? So I had at least a little bit to go on or a little momentum to get myself to watch it. It's so boring and weird and dark, and there's so not anything interesting about anything that's happening on that screen. I don't know how they did it. I don't know how they made a movie so bland. And Jared Leto was fine, but I was hearing stuff afterwards about how he was like ad-libbing lines during the scenes to quote-unquote make them funnier. Like apparently there was a scene with a cat and he would just say like, that cat just pooped on my head and I think some of it went into my mouth. And they were like, Jared, nobody is asking for any of this. Why are you saying these things? And it's just because Jared Leto's a weirdo, I think. Hey, why was he sending his castmates, you know, dead raccoons in a plastic bag when he was on Suicide Squad? Because it's his process. Duh. That's right. And you know what the good thing about in actors' processes when they put it on everyone else. That's what everyone loves when they're in a project. Someone has their own personal process and everyone else just has to deal with it. Mm-hmm. God, everybody loves that. I cannot believe you're a superhero completionist at this point. I mean, I stopped that train of thought after phase three of the MCU was over, whatever, after Avengers Endgame. And I'm glad I did. I'm still behind on like the Disney Plus shows. Like I haven't seen Miss Marvel or Moon Knight, but for the most part, yeah, I still see all of those things as an event and I really enjoy it. But man, do you know about the Morbius tie-in and how they did it to like the rest of the Spider-Man universe? It's the dumbest thing I think I've ever seen. I mean, I'm still mad about the Venom tie-in because Tom Hardy's Venom is awful. It is undeniably (laughs) awful. I would rather have Topher Grace up there because at least it's Topher Grace being Venom and it can be mediocre. Tom Hardy being Venom is supposed to be incredible. Oh, I cannot stand Sony and DC, John. I can't stand it. Well, have you seen... Let There Be Carnage, the sequel? No, no. And I was excited because Andy Serkis was directing it, and then it got just as bad reviews as the first one, and I saw the first one. I actually liked it significantly more than the first one. It's just more fun. Because it's like 95 minutes, it's such a quick ride, and it's real crazy. And so I was like, yeah, more movies like this. And so when I saw Morbius was like an hour 40, I was like, okay, Maybe there's some hope they don't drag this on, but man, did it feel longer than like Endgame. It dragged so, so, so much to the point where I was like, please, oh, please, God, give me some showtime. Five, four, three, two, one, showtime! 
1994, ABC ordered 22 episodes of My So-Called Life, a show with an AP-level understanding of the high school experience. But apparently, the course load was too tough, and it forgot to eat breakfast, as this show was canceled after 19 episodes. So, John, this show was actually a listener recommendation, wasn't it? A listener insistence. Yes. Uh, thank you very much to Riley, who suggested this for us. Um, it was something that we admittedly put off a bit because we were covering 19 48-minute long episodes, and we were just waiting for the right time. But hey, it's the new year, new us. We are ready to go back to high school and just relive all the terrible, terrible feelings that we had about ourselves and about our fellow classmates. Ian and I went to high school together. Did this uh, bring back some fond memories for you watching my so-called life? Yeah, I mean, I was in the theater department in high school. I was very involved with choir, and I'll say this quietly, show choir. (laughs) And a lot of the angst of this show reminded me of the 30 to 50 kids that all hang out together all the time, Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of romantic lines being crossed and and jealousy and uh, stuff like that, so... Like, there's parts of the show where they're like, you've changed. And I was like, no. (laughs) It's like the world's worst time machine for me. Yeah. Anytime they told Angela, you've changed. (laughs) Uh, What about you, John? Yeah, I felt a lot of this show kind of deep in my bones. Uh, They did a really good job, I think, throughout the show of displaying high stakes situations that weren't actually high stakes. There's a certain thing when you're making a show about high school or like when adults are making a show about high school that there is this sort of like cynicism that can come with, oh, we were so dumb back then. We shouldn't have cared this much about all of these stupid, petty dramas. But something that this does and like Freaks and Geeks did and eighth grade Bo Burnham's movie did is they treat every bit of what can be considered petty drama as something that's like life and death, which I think is respectful of that time that we all share. So Winnie Holtzman, the creator of the show, she worked on a show called 30 something Mm. before this show for two years. Yeah. And the creators of that show had a deal with ABC where they got to produce another show. And so they went to Winnie and they were like, hey, we were thinking about doing a show that's kind of like 30-something, a spiritual successor to it, but it takes place in high school. And she said what 30-something did really well and in her mind changed television uh, was that it was a drama with refreshing character comedy and it highlighted the small things in people's lives that are actually big. Yeah. It's funny to me to hear her phrase it like that because I always think of Seinfeld that way. And Seinfeld is quintessential 90s comedy, you know, and that's what it's all about. Like, oh, what are these little nitpicky things that these awful people cannot stop focusing on? And this is a similar idea that predates Seinfeld, you know, so 
I I have to think that this idea was starting to sprout up in like the mid to late 80s in TV. And they did such a good job of just taking small things and making them very important to people. Yeah. To their characters. It does a really unique thing, I think, where everything feels relatable, yet everything is very forgettable. Like you forget that you had these feelings and you went through similar things to these characters. But then when you see it portrayed on screen, you feel this sort of like buried kinship that you didn't you haven't been able to unearth in in such a long time. I will say, though, Ian, this was like right in the middle of Seinfeld's run. Right. It was 1994. But I'm talking about going from 30 something Hmm. then to this in 1994, the span would have been about the same. Mm-hmm. It would have started in the late 80s. Yeah. And what this show does, and I've watched some of 30-something, I completely forgot that these were the same people, but what that show does as well is it really sort of takes all that stuff seriously, where I think Seinfeld and shows of the like take the little minute things and sort of blow them up into sort of bigger set pieces. Whereas everything here is very small and internal and raw, I think is not WWE raw, like, or even like raw meat, like emotionally raw. So just to really hammer home that point. Yeah. I think people might get confused because they're like, oh, he's talking about raw. It's WWE raw, not that raw. Right. I think what Winnie was cooking. <laughs> you fucking dick. Is that uh, these tiny, important things in people's lives are what make them feel such emotion that then they have to put it on other people. And that's what drives the plot, right? Like you take my pencil and you chew on it and you stick it in your ear or whatever. There is a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode about that. But in this, it would really drive a wedge between our friendship. And then our friends would have to talk about the wedge between our friendship. And Mm -hmm. then we'd all have to talk about the pencil. And then at the end, you would have to buy me a pencil. And then I would have to admit it's not really about the pencil. Ian, you can keep the pencil. John, there's a lot of like teenage partying and makeout and sex and whatever in this show. It's it's the high school experience, right? But if mm-hmm. I'm going to be honest, a lot of this stuff I did not do until college, right? Like yeah. a lot of the more adult things that they get into that they have to deal with really were not on my radar until I was like 18, 19, 20. No, but I think we were kind of like on the outside of it and not necessarily judging it. I definitely felt very much in the same place as the main character of the show, Angela Chase, played by uh, Claire Danes in one of her first roles, where Angela is sort of seeing all of this stuff evolving She's starting to get into like a new crowd of friends, which is sort of the catalyst for all the stuff that's happening in the show. And she doesn't necessarily pass judgment on it, but she also doesn't necessarily partake in it. And so I definitely felt her journey in in those regards as well. Yeah, she's interested in it, right? Mm -hmm. She wants to grow up. She wants to change. 
but she's not quite ready to take those steps yet. Mm-hmm. It is a lot about what does it feel like to be ready to sort of start that next phase of your life? And what are the things that are going to propel it? And it's not going to always be like a big thing that sort of sparks this change. Like, I think it's really interesting that, for example, Freaks and Geeks, which I'll probably bring up about 16,000 times throughout the rest of this episode, the sort of inciting incident happens before the show where Linda Cardellini's character, she sees her grandma die and that sort of takes her on this more sort of existential crisis. We're in this sort of similar place with Angela as she gets introduced to a new group of friends, as she reevaluates her relationship with her parents and with school and stuff like that. But there is no real inciting incident that we hear about. It all just kind of evolves. And that's really, it's interesting to see a show start at a place where Somebody's in the midst of this change, but we're just going to see them keep growing from there, even though there's nothing specific that is going to be driving that, which I think is very real. Yeah. One of the reasons that this show is so celebrated is that um, what the creator talked about was at the core of it, the show is about identity, but not just what is my identity. It's like, what is identity? at all. And Mm -hmm. we can see a lot of these high schoolers sort of adopting, changing, trying out different identities, trying to get away from different identities. And that's where she wanted to start out was being like, what about a girl mid change? No, that's a great point. I think that's a great point. Well, let's go to commercial break. And when we Come back, we'll talk a little bit about more who that girl is, who her friends are, who her family is, and all the wacky antics that they get into. And ultimately, what made her one and done. (laughs) (laughs) And now, a word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. Email us oneanddonepod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. John, as I was just saying, the show starts out with her... Angela, Claire Danes, Golden Globe Award winner Claire Danes. Right. Yeah. For this part. And Emmy nominee, too. And she was 15 when they filmed this, which is crazy. Right. By the way, she was also up against like Angela Lansbury for Murder <laughs> She Wrote Man. and uh Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman and The Golden Globes always love to sort of throw the young ingenue an award, though. That's very sort of telling of their brand as an award show. You know, it's Did what... Kavanjane Wallace get an award, John? Maybe, but like Rachel Bloom won a Golden Globe for the first season of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Like Andy Samberg even won for like Brooklyn Nine-Nine. They do like to sort of award people who are starting on this new journey of their life. What's another big one? Um, oh, the, um, the young woman who she's uh, she was in a movie where she was swearing a lot when she was like six. That's a few of them. She won an Oscar. Blue Moon, Tatum O'Neill, probably. <laughs> it's like an eighties movie or a nineties movie. But yeah, so Golden Globe winner Claire Danes. The show starts off with her dyeing her hair red. 
And like I said, she's in the middle of change. So we have our two characters, her friends, Sharon and Brian, are sort of her her pre-change friends. Brian is just this nice kid from down the street who's kind of a nerd that's really into Angela. Sharon is raised in a more traditional values type, you know, probably Christian household. And she's like, Angela, you've changed. And they're not friends anymore. Meanwhile, Angela has two new best friends, Rayanne and Ricky. And Rayanne comes from a single mother household. And Ricky's house, we don't really know where he comes from, but he wears eyeliner. And that is disturbing to Angela's parents at the beginning of the show, right? At the very least, confusing. It's a really interesting thing with Ricky just as a character. So Ricky is the first openly gay teenage character on broadcast TV. So his sort of presence in 1994 was very big, I think, because previously gay characters had been sort of the butt of the joke or they had sort of evolved into a little bit more fleshed out, but as adult characters, particularly in the late 80s. But Ricky is the first openly gay kid on the show but it's he never even says that he's gay until episode 19. Everyone talks about him as like, oh, he might be bi. But yeah, the first episode, Angela tells her parents that he's bi. And Patty, her mom, is like, what? And her younger sister, Danielle, is like, it means bisexual, mom. And she's like, do you hear these terms they're throwing around? What are and these kids with their terms? What are they? The dad, Graham, is... uh surprisingly not really judgmental about it or is like, oh, well, what? He, he wears eyeliner. Oh, okay. Aloof. Yeah, and that's very indicative of sort of Angela's relationship to both of her parents. Her mom, Patty, starts off very adversarial. And at one point, Angela even says, lately I can't bother to look at my mother w- without wanting to stab her, which <laughs> I think is... Yeah. It's direct, but it definitely gets that point across. And then Graham is the father that, at least at the beginning of the series, Angela looks up to. He's the buddy-buddy kind of uh, person. And those dynamics definitely shift throughout the show. And we'll talk about that more a little bit later. But yeah, Ricky and Rayanne are sort of the quote-unquote bad influences that her parents sort of see Angela moving toward, whereas Brian and Sharon are the sort of goody two-shoes. Brian is always the one answering everything in class. Calling Brian the good kid, though, is a complicated statement, I feel like, because Brian does some gnarly things throughout the show that are Uh, questionable at best. I just mean like he's the good boy from down the street. That's that's true. That's he, what I mean. It's the character. He has type. that reputation. Yes. He is that archetype. Yeah. Well, John, if we want to get into specifics, then I say it's class time. Class time. Class time. Class time. Class time. The bell has rung and In order to break down the show a little bit further, I think we need to stop into some of our favorite subjects to see what exactly is happening at Liberty High School. Let's start off in social studies. 
The social aspect of things really jump off when Sharon and Angela break up as friends. There is a very tearful sort of breakup scene in a bathroom in the pilot between Sharon and Angela, where basically Sharon seems to be very against Angela hanging out with Rayanne and Ricky. And because she is friends with those two, those potential ne'er-do-wells, Sharon doesn't see herself in Angela's life anymore. And Angela, also as a result of her hanging out with Rayanne and Ricky, has distanced herself from Sharon. And I really loved this relationship between Sharon and Angela. It reminded me a lot of, for example, my relationship with Chris. Uh, Chris, one of our dear friends who is, I think, a loyal listener and hopefully won't be surprised when he's hearing this, but you know, Chris and I had some big old blowups in middle school, high school, college, but we always found our way back to each other. And I think that there's a lot of people that have those kind of relationships. Even I thought it was great that Sharon's mom and Angela's mom were friends. And so when Sharon and Angela were like fighting about it, you would see Sharon's mom and Angela's mom being like, remember when I got so pissed at you for spreading that rumor about me making out with the boy behind the bleachers or whatever that was? It was like, you got to see that, yeah, this is short term, but it definitely has impacted their relationship in a big way. Yeah, their moms being friends for so long just goes to show how relationships change over the years if you stick around. Um, There is a strong quote in there somewhere about how friendships like these are important and unique because they're people that know you the best because they've seen you change. They see you in the different iterations of yourself, and we have to keep choosing To kind of go along with it, you know, I mean, even our friendship, you know, I, I could probably name 10 phases in 10 years that I've had. Yeah, absolutely. There's times where you don't talk as much. There's times where you talk a little bit more. You call them up when you need a good cry. You make 36 episodes of a podcast with them. Everything just, you know, standard stuff that everyone does. Yeah. And that all kind of comes to a head way through the show, like Sharon's dad has a heart attack and Sharon ends up staying at Angela's house because, you know, it's a tough time. And Angela kind of keeps her distance because she doesn't feel like Sharon wants her around. But then Sharon ends up saying, like, you were the only person that I wanted around. And that sort of brings back like, oh, yeah, even though we are sort of drifting apart, we do have this love for each other. And I was talking to your wife, Natalie, last night, and she was saying that that was a situation that rang particularly true to her. That sort of dynamic with friends, I think, is powerful. And especially between teenage girls, not that this is not true for everybody, but there was an indicative scene about their friendship and the, the friction between them Uh, midway through the show, where they both just admit that they're jealous of each other. Yeah. And uh, I think that's the episode where there's the list that the boys make about, you know, I think uh, Rayanne is the most likely to become a slut 
is what she's voted as, and Sharon is voted for having biggest breasts, which is... Uh, I believe it's best global endowments. <laughs> oh, boys are awful, but that you is Boys funny. are awful. Oh, my gosh. Okay, that's, I mean, moving along in the rest of our social studies period, boys are terrible in this show, and they... There are some rumors flying around. I mean, there's uh, Angela be finding out that people are saying that she had sex with a boy. Jordan Catalano, uh, played by the aforementioned Jared Leto. We'll get into him in a second, too. But we find out that Brian is the one that spread that rumor. I mean, good God, there is so much drama. I feel like Brian is an instigator for so much of this stuff too like i'm looking at our list of what we are planning on discussing during this period brian is holding out on information when there's an actual shooting in the school too that uh, basically ricky's gun goes off ricky's cousin's gun yes sorry and brian sees ricky but he doesn't want to throw ricky under the bus so Brian holds back all this and the principal ends up like threatening Brian, which is a very weird dynamic to see. But it's interesting to see a topic like this covered in a show before Columbine even happened, like five years pre-Columbine. Oh, yeah. School shooting storylines. So every episode starts off with kind of a quote like Angela sort of sets the scene for what we're about to see. And episode three, she says, every adult knows where they were when JFK was shot, like exactly where they were to the minute. Sometimes I wish I had something like that. And then very quickly after that, the gun goes off in the hallway. Yeah. I did like the sort of funnier side of that idea where, so this gun goes off, um, it basically punctures a hole in a random person's locker and that locker has soda in it and soda just like pours out of it. And the girl whose locker got shot, who was nowhere near the shooting itself, goes on this thing about like, I could have been right there. I, I was thinking just the I other day about, about how-, how I wanted that soda. <laughs> That was, and that was the first thought that I had. How crazy is that? And she makes it all about her. And you're like, oh boy. It was her locker that was shot. It was. But also, it was was one of the things the show did really well. Just showing how funny and ridiculous all of these heightened emotions can be. Yeah. Clearly, she was feeling a lot because the lock, her locker was the one that was shot. But also, like, she makes it all about the soda or pop. (laughs) We're from Chicago, John. Let's not hide yeah. it. It's the one thing I've adopted since moving to Wisconsin. I do. I am a soda sayer now. Oh, me too. I mean, being in New York and now Texas and going to school in Missouri, it's like I have to choose whether I'm going to say pop or soda. It, this division I hit where I go, am I acclimating? Am I giving in? Or am I yeah. going to stick to my roots? These are the things that matter. These are the Hard-hitting conversations that are going to win us a Peabody. Yes. Exactly. Um, But going back to Brian, he is the instigator of a lot of these situations because he's very jealous. He's into Angela, right? Mm -hmm. And she's into Jordan. But also, 
Angela kind of plays around with Brian too. She Oh yeah. She likes, uses Brian. Yeah. yeah, they they all use each other and she likes the power of knowing that Brian is always there for her as a backup. So while Brian's not great, I don't want to say anyone is like truly that much better than him. No, I think that's completely fair. Yeah, Angela has this line early on in the show where she says something to the effect of, why am I the one that always has to think about him when he never thinks about me? And the fact that she doesn't have to think about Brian and Brian will still do things for her, like she knows that dynamic and she's able to use him and play that up. And then Brian is just so socially inept sometimes that he throws himself in the middle of these insane situations, like when Brian films accidentally kind of on purpose though he films Rayanne hooking up with Angela's crush Jordan in the back of a car he accidentally films them flirting and then purposefully films them you know the hand on the fog like in Titanic we know what's going on in that car yeah there is a a zoom in when we see the POV from Brian's uh, big old 1994 camcorder Oh, man. So a lot of people just figuring out their social dynamics. Well, I think social studies is over. Should we head over to English class, Ian? Yes. All right. Class is in session. And I want to start talking about the shifting narrators of the show, because it's always narrated by Angela, except for in at least two cases. One episode is narrated by Brian and Mm -hmm. one is narrated by her younger sister Danielle and I thought that was pretty interesting especially because Danielle doesn't get a lot of screen time until that episode no and I think that's very purposeful so we haven't talked about Danielle because Danielle is the younger sister to the moody teenage character who I feel like often gets that person in life often gets pushed aside when there's sort of more pressing crazy drama that is uh, happening with the older sister, like I really liked how during the Halloween episode, Danielle dressed up as Angela and Danielle even takes the same posture as Angela saying that she's standing like the shirts, her only friend. <laughs> Which I think, right. Cause she's like hugging it. Yeah, hugging exactly. Herself. <laughs> so it was nice to give Danielle and Brian those extra little uh, POVs, but yeah, a lot of this is Angela And I think another sort of unique thing about this show is that it is told in the present tense. Angela knows how to articulate all of the very complicated feelings that she is currently feeling, but it doesn't have that like tinge of nostalgia, you know, like, oh, I remember way back when, how silly was I? Angela's narration is very poetic and very thoughtful Like I wrote down a couple of these quotes that she has in her narration. She's like, school is a battlefield for your heart, which is a very silly thing to say, but it also feels very earnest coming from Claire Danes's voice. Yeah, it's better when she says it. Yeah. Or like somebody, I think Brian says to her at one point, like, you'll screw up your whole life. And she goes, at least I know I'm alive. And you're like, oh, honey like I remember that (laughs) like it doesn't feel condescending it just feels like yeah 
Yeah, you're feeling all those things. I remember that. She can be right on in a lot of her narrations. Like one of them was, sometimes people say, be yourself, as if being yourself is like a thing, like a toaster, which (laughs) I really appreciate because the show itself is so much about how the characters are always changing and you know, how she's going through stuff and stuff happens to her and she has to make decisions and she grows based on them or whatever. But I I feel that it's like if the show is about identity and if so much of our cultural conversation today is about identity, right? It's not a box, you know, that's, I think that's why a lot of times now we're saying things are like a spectrum, you know, sexuality, gender, ADHD, even, you know, we're kind of, starting to say and be forward about the fact that like there are seven days in the week and I can be a different version of myself every single one of those days. Yeah. And Angela articulates it very well. Yeah. You know that the feelings are earnest. The way it's said is definitely, and people characters even like admire how Angela articulates things. They're like, where did you read that? She's like, I didn't read it. I just thought of it. But she's not like braggadocious about it or anything like that. She just knows how she's feeling and is able to communicate that both to the audience and to the people around her. She's able to let her filter down sometimes when she's feeling deep emotions, but it's like she talks slowly enough that she can articulate it better than most people. (laughs) I think that I'm hungry for a sandwich. (laughs) I don't have a good example. I'm just saying, uh, you know, I'm just trying to No, I get that. But that's also the sort of perception that gets put onto Jordan Catalano, who we've touched on briefly, played by Jared Leto. He is the sort of blue-eyed dream boy the floppy hair, he plays guitar, he's got a car, and he is the most aloof son of a bitch I think I've ever seen on TV. He just kind of goes through and doesn't really care, I think, or notice how other people see him, which I think gives him such a mystique that people see his lack of articulation as something that is deep and meaningful when actually he's just struggling hard to basically get through the day. And, but people put this on him because he doesn't talk much. So for a non-visual medium, the best way to describe Jordan is, Hey, Jordan, Jordan looks at you, looks away from you. Yeah. (laughs) Looks down looks up, flips his hair. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) And like, I've never seen a camera give so much time to an actor to say one word. (laughs) Yeah. He, he milks it. At one point, Angela says about Jordan early on in the pilot, I think she says, he's always closing his eyes like it hurts to look at things. And you're like, oh, Angela, no, he's just tired. <laughs> like, 
Yeah, and he's also a bit disturbed. Uh, since we're in yeah. English class, we do learn eventually that Jordan can't read pretty much. Or, he's dyslexic. Yeah, he it it's very difficult for him to read and write, which comes up a, a few times through the show, including when Angela basically writes a love letter that is not meant to be seen by Jordan, but he sees it and just like hands it back and is like, oh, you dropped this. <laughs> like, And she's like, didn't you read this? He's like, yeah, I read parts of it. And you're like, oh, Jordan, you don't, you don't know what's, uh, what's in there. Well, we learned he can't really read the episode before that. And then in this one, Angela realizes it and it's, he connects with her finally because it's really she's the only person that knows other mm-hmm. than him and you know some select teachers maybe but that's like he's always skipping class he doesn't do well in school he doesn't talk a lot and it's really like jordan's the heartthrob but he's really vapid but also he can be a little bit deep at least and it turns out it's just like he has a tough home life yeah and no one's ever bothered to really care about his development enough to notice why he avoids people and school. Yeah. He doesn't invest in anything or anyone. And so he definitely is seen as this person that the girls want to fix and they feel like they can fix. And it's just like, give him a chance and he'll, you know, rise to the occasion. But then frequently throughout the show, he just doesn't. And it's it's really interesting to see that sort of self-destructive pattern play out, uh, especially what in certain episodes where the theme of the episode is like self-consciousness or self-respect uh, across all of the different characters. Yeah. And I just want to shout out really quick to while we're in English class, uh, the writing of this show they have multiple sort of theme episodes. They have an episode where they're reading the Odyssey in class and there's a character story arc that's a little bit like he can see himself in the Odyssey, you know, or the play Our Town is highlighted as well, which do you know what Our Town's about, John? I It's one of those plays that I actually just recently bought because I want to read. Right. It's something every high school does. And yet I did not know much about it until I think my cousin did it in high school last year. And it's, it's Thornton Wilder, right? Uh, uh, probably. But, okay. <laughs> you know, it's about a town and then you realize that they're all dead. And it's just like a big existential exploration of what matters and why do we care about things and what can we let go of that doesn't actually matter. Uh, And then there's another episode where they talk about the metamorphosis, which is the story about the guy turning into a cockroach, which was like, they use it really well as a parallel to, you know, going through puberty or Mm -hmm. even uh, the mom, Patty has wrinkles. And so, you know, her, her vanity is in question as well and her identity and uh they just they did a really good job with that stuff so i just want to shout it out well speaking of puberty we should go over to biology john let's talk about these angsty hormonal teens jeez they are so painfully 
self-conscious about everything, particularly the girl characters. But Brian and Ricky are as well. Jordan, I don't think he sometimes knows what day it is, so I don't know how self-conscious he could be. But Ricky, I mean, Ricky's name is Enrique, and he goes by Ricky because he doesn't want, you know, that part of his uh, culture personality to emerge. He doesn't want, uh, I guess, the stigma of being a Hispanic boy in high school. Right. Which is, I think, really interesting. At one point, he's sort of, uh, when he's called Enrique and the class, like, laughs. Yeah. And he puts on, like, the Hispanic voice and is like, my name is Enrique. I want to be in this country or something like that. And it's, like, clear he's demeaning this part of himself because he tries so hard to, like, hide it. Or he's different in so many other ways that Mm -hmm. he just wants to try to be more American-esque. Like, I think he cuts his hair at one point to try to assimilate. Oh, in in the Halloween episode, he Mm -hmm. dresses as Brian. And he's like, look, I'm everybody else today. I'm normal. Yeah, and Ricky is so confident in some parts of his life, too. Like, you know, he's gay. He knows he's gay. Everyone knows he's gay, but they don't really talk about it. He never talks about it again. Like, he doesn't say it out loud until episode 19, and he even says, that's the first time I've said it out loud. And yet, he walks freely into the girl's bathroom, and it's not pervy. It's not inappropriate. Everyone just kind of accepts that, yep, that's Ricky. He wears eyeliner. He goes into the girl's. Right. He says, uh, I don't want to be a girl. I just want to hang out with them. Something like that at one point. And everyone's just like, yeah, we get it. The episode 19, uh, you could call it a reveal. I mean, it's more like he comes out and comes to the conclusion himself that he's gay because up until this point, we've only been told he's bisexual once at the very beginning of the show. And then this girl, Delia, has a crush on him, and he starts to show some interest in her, and you're like, oh, wow, maybe Ricky will date a woman. I don't know. And Mm -hmm. then he goes to ask her out, and she's like, that sounds nice, but even... And we know she has a crush on him. She's like, that sounds nice, but you're gay, aren't you? And he's like, well, I just... I don't like to say it like that. And she goes, well, how do you say it? And he goes... I don't say it. Yeah. I'm gay. Ricky has come to Accepted terms. himself. Exactly. The the writing, the way it played out that they would, that he would discover it for himself on the last episode. Especially since earlier in that episode, he was just like, I can be straight for this girl, basically. You know, in so many words, he right. says. And he even says to Delia too, which I think is a really sweet moment. Like, if I were attracted to girls, I'd be attracted to you. So, like, Delia's not hurt by that. It's just who Ricky is. And I really admired the respect, but also the honesty. It didn't feel like they were, like, grandstanding Ricky in that moment. It's just like, nope, this is who Ricky is. And the show in general, I think, throughout everyone's sort of self-consciousness and self-doubt and overanalyzing and underanalyzing and not thinking about other people frequently. It doesn't judge people. 
in the show. No. Which I really liked. Winnie Holtzman made a point to be like, we're going to make a show about a teenage girl, but we're just going to explore the aspects of being a teenage girl. We're not going to always make her the hero or anything. No. And I think that that sort of plays out to like with her, how her relationship with uh, Jordan plays out throughout the show. You know, so Jordan is this kind of obsession, as she puts it, for Angela. Uh, she looks on him from afar. Rayanne sort of pushes Angela to ask him out or like kind of throw herself at him. And he basically hears that she likes him. And so he kisses her, but it's not the way that she wants to be kissed, which is a perfectly fair thing. He just kind of throws his face at hers and it, it's not good. He keeps missing the perfect moments too. Oh, it. that scene was so good where she was sitting in a car with Jordan and you hear her narration and she is saying, and it was the perfect moment. And then he's like, well, you should go. And you're like, damn it. Like, And that, that happens twice, actually. There's another scene in a hallway or under the bleachers where again, she's like, this was the perfect moment. I would do anything with him and he could try anything with me. And he's like, yeah, well, I'm going to go hang out with my buddies. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, she doesn't respect herself enough early on in that relationship to stand up for what she wants out of a relationship. Like, but she also doesn't know she's never, she doesn't know exactly boys before this. Absolutely. So when he's like, hey, we're going to make out in the boiler room and nobody can know that we're dating. She's like, yeah, if that gets me closer to you, cool. And we'll eventually figure it out. And then when he almost loses her, they start dating. But then he pressures her to have sex and she's not ready. And man, when he said to her, it's what you're supposed to do unless you're abnormal. I was just like, oh, God, Angela, I'm so sorry you have to put up with this petty boy BS. Well, I actually got the idea that not that he not that it isn't petty boy BS, but that he was talking about himself in that moment, because up until that point, he's dealing with so much like razzing from his friends, the other dudes in the band and whatever, that he's getting all this peer pressure. And that's why he's hiding Angela for whatever reason, right? Yeah. His friend at one point refers to her as that weird girl that hangs out with Rayanne. And mm. uh, so I thought that that moment was him being like, I haven't had sex, so I'm weird. I guess I kind of thought that was them telling us that he's a virgin, even though they never told us that yet. I, oh, I don't think that's the case at all. I don't I think, necessarily think that either, but I, I think there was a social pressure thing. Uh, at that moment, I thought that, but going on with the show, I didn't. Yeah, I think that he just has expectations about how people are around him and therefore expected her to be the same. And then when she's not, that makes him more interested in her in this sort of weird way. Like we see later on in the show, Brian ends up, tutoring Jordan in English and Jordan says, Oh, like that girl over there who talked to you for two seconds, likes you just ask her for your number. And Brian's like, 
you can't just do that. And Jordan goes up to her, gets her phone number in like two seconds. It's like, yes, he is the quote unquote hottest guy in school who has the confidence of the hottest guy in school and the aloofness of a balloon that's just kind of wafting through the summer breeze. And so therefore people are just like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll explore more of you. But, and Angela's the same way too. I have uh, two points to make about that. He can get any girl's number aspect of things. Was that, uh, it was an interesting storyline because Brian is not going to tutor. I keep wanting to say Jared, Jordan, uh, (laughs) because he's like, you're dating the girl I'm in love with or whatever. So I just don't want to do that until he gets him the girl's phone number And then it becomes this trade of like, I'll tutor you. I'll teach you how to read if you can teach me how to love, which was an unholy bargain. It was weird. And uh, Jordan definitely got the uh, better end of that, too, because Brian ends up basically doing a Cyrano de Bergerac and writing a love letter that basically Brian articulates all of his feelings towards Angela. But willingly hands it off to Jordan to give to Angela in order to win her back. But Brian is such a freaking masochist that anytime anyone confronts him about it, he's like, what? I I said I'd help, so I would. And you're just like, Brian, why? (laughs) And that moment's powerful, too, because Brian, Ricky is very intuitive and knows exactly what's going on and sort of confronts Brian about like, wait, you're using Jordan. And Brian's like, no, Jordan's using me. And he's like, no, you're using Jordan to tell Angela the way that you feel about her. And it's weird. And Brian uh, is actually, he goes off about self-harm in that moment and kind of shows that he's uh, thinking, he's thinking suicidal thoughts at at that time, which is just goes to show, I think how like, they're all spinning in circles and that moment really uh, is like an eruption for Brian of everything that he wants versus all of his worst instincts crashing together at the same moment. All he can think to do is end the suffering, you know, and it's only a scene, but it was very telling to me of Brian's personality and Before we move on, I do have a fun fact, which I know does not sound like it should follow this. That's a hell of a transition, (laughs) dude. Like, I have a fun fact. Uh, So we're going from self-harm into fun facts. Okay. The moment where- What's your zany antidote? The moment where uh, Jordan gets the phone number for Brian was a moment that happened in real life when Jared Leto took that actor out wherever- was he was just like, oh, yeah, you want to get those girls' number? I'll go get those girls' number for you. And it was like he just went and he told the girls, and the girls went up to the guy that plays Brian and was like, hey, that guy told us you sh- we should give you our numbers. So they did. And then Jeez. Winnie heard about this and wrote it into the show. Yeah. which Seems like something would happen. Yeah, some of the Jared Jordan parallels, you know. I'm sure there's too many than we'd care to know. No. Yeah. Well, they're not the only relationship. I really like the relationship between Sharon and Kyle too. Uh, So Sharon, who again, early on in the show is positioned as the sort of 
good old friend of Angela's. She ends up dating this jock named Kyle. And we hear sort of early on that Sharon might not be ready to have sex with Kyle. But then we find out after they have broken up that Sharon did actually have a lot of sex with Kyle. And man, I love that scene where it's an episode all about like pressuring people to have sex. I think the episode itself is called Pressure. But that brought on like this new sort of layer to it where Sharon has this monologue about how she wasn't going to have sex with Kyle until she was ready to. And then one night she was ready to. But then once you get past that point, it just felt expected. So even if she wasn't really ready to, she just kind of kept doing it because that was something that just felt implied. Right. It didn't matter whether she wanted to or not anymore. No. And that was something I don't think I've ever seen kind of explored in especially a show like this or any sort of entertainment like this. And then afterwards, too, Sharon just ends up using Kyle for his body, like after like the New Year's (laughs) episode, right? Because she's like... She gets like horned up by watching Brad Pitt in Seven Years in Tibet or whatever it is, and or Legends of the Fall, I think. And she's like, anytime we watch a Brad Pitt movie, like we're getting down and dirty. And I'm like, you know what? Get your Sharon. Why not? If if this is what you want, I'm all for it. So I just want to quickly shout out before I say this. There is a podcast that I listen to as a resource. It's called TV Herstory, which is a well-researched podcast that comes out with an episode every couple months about uh, women and TV and sort of the importance that they have in the cultural landscape and conversation. And the host of that show made a really good point about how Sharon's upbringing, which was a very traditional, more uptight sort of Christian one, made her the least able to cope with the realities of high school. So she is the least able to deal with the fact that she might feel things, but because she's told like, don't act on them. She only can live in a binary of yes or no. She can't like Angela sort of dip her toes a little bit and go to a party, but not drink, you know? Yeah. Sharon's either all in or all out. Pardon the pun. I can see that. Well, speaking of all out, I think we should leave biology and move on to home ec. We've talked a lot about what happens at the school and with the kids, but one of the other really big components of my so-called life is the parents, uh, Patty and Graham, Angela's parents. And I'd say about like a third of every episode is dedicated to them. I thought it was interesting, too. I saw that they wrote more for the parents because of the child labor laws that they were dealing with with Claire Danes. So basically because Claire Danes couldn't be on set as much or after a certain point, they wrote more for the parents in order to sort of fill an episode and keep these sort of storylines going. Well, it it makes sense. I mean, see our uh, The Get Down episode. (laughs) for more child labor laws getting in the way of shooting. But this show parallels Angela's problems with her mom's problems often. Yeah. 
You know, this show is almost as much about a middle-aged woman that used to be a teenager as huh. much as it is about being a teenager, right? Yeah, I completely agree with that. And yet they can see eye to eye so rarely. But when they do, it's so touching, I think, and, and magical. Like, like I said, the relationship between Angela and her mom is very adversarial at the beginning. It definitely evolves a lot more, even though... So Patty is very conservative for the most part in terms of her values. I think she likes to think of herself as the cool mom, but you get sort of glimpses of what this looks like. She is quote unquote confused by Ricky when she first meets him. She fights with Angela about very small things. She sort of screams at Angela a decent amount. She has a, she's very quick to judge a lot of different aspects. And I think that is sort of very telling of, that character's need to sort of control the situation. Yeah, in I mean, every aspect. The very first episode, and when we meet her, Angela shows up at home and has red hair. It's a different haircut, and Patty's freaking out because she's like, she looks like a stranger to me. Yeah. So it's not quite just that. It's like I think you should be primp and proper. It's like no. all of a sudden, I think she's freaking out because her daughter's changing and she cannot keep up. You know, or she doesn't want to. I don't I don't quite know. But I think that she is very traditional up until episode nine is called Other People's Parents. And that is when we really get to know Rayanne's mom better, who is a single mom. Uh, she works as like a radiology technician, radiologist, uh, at, in like the evening shift or something like that. So Rayanne has some alone time. Her dad's kind of a, you know, deadbeat or something like that. He's out of the picture and she doesn't have a lot of oversight in her life, except for when her mom's around, she's like smothering. So, or she's mm -hmm. a lot and, and we can get into that later. But um, Angela meets Rayanne's mom. Rayanne gets to know Patty more and Patty has to save Rayanne's life. It's the same episode that we also meet the grandma. So mm -hmm. we are Patty's mom. Right. We are looking at three moms, Patty's mom, Angela's mom, AKA Patty and Rayanne's mom <laughs> and how they react to different situations. And Patty's a control freak and her mom, her, the grandma can be overbearing, but then when the moment comes, when Angela chooses to go to Rayanne's party instead of her grandparents' 45th anniversary, Rayanne ODs, and then Angela has to call her mom to be like, hey, you need to come here and help me. The grandma's like, go help her, you know? And I think that some of these more things that we would have expected to happen, these traditional hide the evidence, every be judgmental about everything, does fall away for Patty when it matters. And then she does start to accept the fact that Angela has new different friends and yeah. becomes a part of their lives. 
There's a great conversation after that happens where Patty tells Angela that her roommate in college actually died from overdosing or alcohol poisoning or whatever it was. And Patty says, I don't know how I can trust you to be friends with these people. And Angela basically says, all you have to do is trust me. And that's all you need to do. And I will do the rest. And Patty just kind of needs to let go and is like, okay, this is our relationship. Like I am putting this trust in you to not turn out like Rayanne. And Patty herself too is awesome in terms of the accomplishments that she has in her career. She runs her dad's printing business and has some sort of conflicts there too. Like Patty's dad wasn't doing the books properly. And so they're getting audited uh, for tax stuff. I call him shutdown grandpa, Patty's dad, because no matter (laughs) what she says, she's doing it wrong in his eyes. Yeah. But then what's crazy is, and this just shows uh, sort of fragility of grandpa. Grandpa says that is what it is to raise a girl. Walking on eggshells all the time, which is like, just goes to show he's like, oh, it's like I'm going to hurt your feelings or everything I say. And as the audience are like, stop hurting her feelings deliberately, you <laughs> jerk. <laughs> Please. Patty is dealing with enough, including dealing with her husband who is going through a bit of a midlife crisis. I mean, that's basically... Graham's whole arc, Angela essentially introduces her dad as somebody who thinks that everybody else is having fun except for him. And that doesn't mean he's like sour in his disposition about anything. He just has this sort of yearning, this wanderlust for the things that he's not experiencing. Like he, in episode two, almost cheats on Patty because a woman shows interest in him. And this other woman is like, meet me at a motel. And he's sort of racking his brain about whether or not he should do it. And he ends up not doing it. But that is very telling for his character because he he ends up quitting his job at the printing firm that Patty runs. And he becomes a cook in a weird sort of, series of events where he tries to take a cooking class, but then the instructor never shows up or the instructor is terrible. And he ends up teaching the class. And one of the other people in this class is sort of a business mogul who wants to start her own restaurant. But then when that sort of starts to snowball, this business mogul student person, this woman, Hallie Lowenthal, quick sidebar. The show does a great job at saying people's first and last names while still making it feel organic. I don't know. The Jordan Catalano thing got pretty out of control, if you ask me. But Hallie uh, Lowenthal but such good did. Hallie Lowenthal, Jordan Catalano, Brian Krakow. Uh, they just do it constantly. Anyway, he starts to get into this like flirty relationship with Hallie Lowenthal, too. After And Hallie sort of comes off initially as this sort of non-threat because she has a fiancé, but then her fiancé leaves her, and then that throws Patty onto high alert 
woman be stepping to be my man kind of thing. Like there is, this is, this is going to happen. Yeah. I will and, correct you a little bit and say, Patty fired Graham from the printing shop because right. she knew he was unhappy and he needed to do something else. And so this new something else leads to an almost relationship that everyone can see a mile away, including oh, yeah. Patty, who puts it in the back of her mind as much as she can until she might have to confront it and then it doesn't happen. So she puts it in the back of her mind again until she titillates herself by inviting over an ex-boyfriend, but he doesn't show up because he's married. And who shows up at the jo- the door? Jordan. Jordan Catalano. freaking Catalano. Man. Yeah. And I love that scene too where Patty is expecting this old flame of hers. Jordan shows up to try to talk to Angela and Patty just sort of gets this glimpse of who this guy that she was sort of fawning over used to be, but like in the present tense via Jordan Catalano. Right. And it's so interesting. Patty seems like one of those people that passes judgments on a lot of different people. And she always probably thinks like, oh man, I wish I wasn't right about that thing. But she often is. And she has good instincts about it too. Not often. I wouldn't say often, but when she does, she feels vindicated, but also feels hurt. Yeah, it goes back to she wasn't always so uptight or controlling or whatever, but she's been burnt and she sees the parallels in her daughter's life and she starts to freak out about them and become maybe overly protective. Before we shut the door on Graham really quick, too, uh, all of this cheating business, Angela catches on to she doesn't quite know anything but she catches on to all of it and that changes their relationship pretty drastically after episode four in that before it's like daddy's the fun one mommy's the mean one and then it's like oh daddy might be not as cool as i thought and mom might not be as bad as i thought and there's these constantly, it's just like the friend group. The the relationships are constantly shifting around. And I think it's really mm. cool. And just like everything else in the show, every character kind of gets their space to live in their moment. I thought there's this one really great sort of illustration of Graham when he's sort of having a, a freak out. And he comes through the door. He goes upstairs. It's like daddy's laying down upstairs and Patty goes in to see him and he's not like screaming or fuming. He's just like beat and burned out and he just needs some time to himself. And I've done exactly that thing. You know, when you're so overwhelmed by life that you're not like pissed off at anything, you just need to sit in a dark room and just kind of collect yourself before you can move on to your other responsibilities. And I just thought that was such an honest and quiet powerful moment well i think then school is out of session john and we can finally get to our extracurricular activities and talk about ray ann because we have barely talked about ray ann now john why did we want to put ray ann into extracurricular activities because ray ann is extra as hell (laughs) man Ray Ann is somebody who is just this freaking hurricane of a force. She has this air about her like she doesn't care about anything and she's willing to do anything to make 
somebody smile or get a reaction out of people. You know, she calls people out on their feelings. She makes jokes when nobody should be making jokes, like that school shooting episode. She basically goes to the guidance counselor's office, fakes crying, and says, I should be leaving school, shouldn't I? And so she's always just trying to get out of stuff. And generally, she's just a party girl. You know, she goes out and she drinks so much that she gets in herself into real trouble. Oh, yeah. I mean, the first episode, she almost gets fully sexually assaulted and it never comes up again. And I mean, Ricky says she blacked out. Who knows? You know, but uh, yeah. her party girl lifestyle, I think both get, gets in the way of her warm personality, but I think is mm-hmm. also a symptom of her insecurities, you know, and maybe the way she yeah. was raised and whatever. But I got to say, actually, Rayanne, out of anyone, I, I think I'm more of a Rayanne if I was going to assign myself to somebody because what she and I share is that we we just talk because we don't know what else to do sometimes. So we're like, oh, blah, 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 blah. And everyone's like, shut up. And I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I just need to shut up then. Everyone just seems to be, I just, oh, I guess it's a big deal now. Or like someone's sad and she's trying to be goofy or, you know, someone's goofy and she's trying to match their energy or, you know, she's, uh, feeling really insecure so all of a sudden she tries to be the singer in Jordan's band you know like she's just throwing a lot of stuff at the wall to see what sticks and unfortunately that part I can relate to the hardest yeah she comes into any situation full force without really thinking about what the repercussions could possibly be from her actions and I think she just flies on momentum constantly. So we talked about how she almost gets sexually assaulted in this parking lot when she's wasted. She goes to the hospital after drinking a bunch and taking some ecstasy too. She's basically ODing in her own house. Uh, And then- And her mom needs to go to a date, which is sidebar. I just, I forgot to bring that up earlier. Holy- Yeah. Man, that was was intense. Uh, But she gets sober after that. But then- she relapses and the the scene where she relapsed was such an interesting one. So they're wait. She, Angela and Ricky are waiting in line to go see like a movie or something. And they're all like laughing about stupid stuff. And Rayanne just like breaks into this like flowy, like dancey version of like the Sesame street theme. And like, you know, I'm going to go to Sesame Street and like everyone's like joining in on it. And then she just takes a bottle from somebody else's hand and just like takes a drink, like a complete stranger. And you see the shots of Angela and Ricky reacting to this and they're like, oh, no. And it's not like, Rayanne, don't do that. They're just like, okay. This is going to be one of those nights again. She definitely leaves an impact on people, but she doesn't realize how directly she hurts people sometimes because there are a few things in this world that she actually does care about. 
like on a deep level. Yeah. And we find that out when she hooks up with Jordan in the back of his car. Angela's really pissed at her. And she does that thing that what I like to call the Ian Hamilton where she's like, oh, what? what? So big what? deal. What? Oh. Yeah. Like, so you guys, whatever it was, like you were done, you were broken up. And Angela's like, what makes you think that this was an okay thing for you to do? Mm-hmm. And then she really has to sort of internalize that and feel that. Dude, but then Angela takes those feelings and she puts it on Ricky by trying to hook up with the guy he's interested in. Dude, these, these people kids. are messy. Messy, 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 messy people. And another thing about Rayanne before we move on is just like when she gets really excited about trying to be the singer of the band, that's when Ricky gets really worried about her because she's like in a flurry about something that she's half-assing and is not very important. And he knows that that is before the real storm comes. Like she's focusing on the wrong thing which means she's not in a good place. And then Ricky knows he has to take all of that emotional weight onto himself. So it makes his life terrible for a couple of days. And mm-hmm. Rayanne does not appreciate the fact that the people around her have to worry about her when she's being erratic. Yeah. And there is so much that went into this show. I think class is over. I think our extracurriculars have finished up for the night. Let's go to a commercial break, and then we're going to talk about whether or not we would renew the show. And now a word from our sponsors. Ian, we have talked about the highs, the lows, and the woes of my so-called life a lot of all three given everything that we just talked about in this hour plus of a highlight section ian would you renew i would emphatically renew and it's an incredible show i think it's written really well i think it shows uh the truths of not just being a high schooler but being a parent and being alive and what it means to feel feelings and then have to not know why, but you're reacting with those feelings. And then also other people are taking their feelings and they're dumping them on your head and you have to deal with that too. I've never seen a show, uh, maybe even a movie, I think, tackle it with the nuance that this show does and this show has a lot of there's a lot of big stuff that happens there's gunshots there's sleeping together there's you know an od there's handcuffs uh, there's sex handcuffs (laughs) you know like there's a lot of big things that happen but they accomplished what they wanted to accomplish which is highlight the small things as closely as possible. Um, What about you, John? Would you renew? I very much would renew. Maybe not as emphatically as you. Really? And I think there's just a couple things that I think kind of dinged it for me slightly. I will preface this nitpicky. Overall, really like Sure. 
I think the pacing was a little sluggish at times. These episodes are 48 minutes as opposed to a typical 44. And honestly, I kind of weirdly felt that they were notably longer than other dramas. I completely agree with you. And I was like, did they sell less ad space in 1994 (laughs) than they did in 2006? Like, it really, I was like, did dramas used to have a whole four extra minutes or is it just this show? There was just some filler, I felt like, in each episode that kind of grounded to a halt sometimes. And there wasn't an episode that I watched where I didn't check how much time was left. And again, I think that also there's a couple episodes one of which I think I'm going to get to in my Dunzo Awards that felt so weirdly out of place that it kind of took me out of the entire arc of the show. That being said, everything that you said I think is 100% accurate. There is a nuance and an empathy to this show that I don't think I've ever really experienced in anything. The grounded honesty of it just sank into my heart in such a deep way watching this show. I found myself getting very invested in everything that was happening with every character because even though you couldn't always understand why somebody was doing something, you knew there was a trust in the creators that you knew that this is what these characters would do even if it's not something that you would agree with. And I think that this pilot in particular was so strong that it set up everyone. And this is a big cast for a drama show. It's a big cast. They had to do a lot of legwork, but they did it again with little moments to make it make sense and ground you in something that felt honest, no matter what direction it ended up going in. Yeah. So... To your nitpick, I think it's tough to do 19 or 22 episodes of anything without some filler, you know? We're we're so used to now dramas being like 10 to 13 episodes. Now it's maybe even 8 or 6, you know? They the seasons keep getting shorter. Sometimes the episodes get longer, but I uh and I'm not saying you're wrong. I agree. I was sometimes I'd pause the show and I'd be like, "How am I only halfway through this episode?" Yeah, so I had much that a couple times too. And the reason I'm sort of knocking this a little bit more is because Freaks and Geeks, I think, is a show that flew by mm. anytime I watched it. So I know that I could see something that tackles things earnestly, honestly, but also be entertaining enough to drive an engine for a full hour of network TV. And I think that sometimes their ultimate goal of being grounded and small and quiet just sunk the momentum of some of the episodes as a result. I think that the goal itself is very admirable and it was something that I think they accomplished very successfully and it's something that I really enjoyed. But as pure entertainment, it was a little tough to get through sometimes. Yeah, sure. Freaks and Geeks is definitely a more uh, polished and put together a piece of television than mm. 
this is. It's time for the Dunzo Awards. These are the superlatives that we give out to every show. It could be the best. It could be the worst. It could be the weirdest. It could be the moodiest. Whatever it may be, we have decided to give these shows their just desserts. Each of us have two Dunzo Awards to give out to whatever we feel like it. Dang it. We're not high schoolers. We have agency. Ian, what is your first Dunzo Award? My first award is the Oh. It's just Brian Award, (laughs) which goes to the many times in the show that the family (laughs) thought someone else was going to be at the door and it turned out to be the neighbor boy, Brian Krakow, or there was like a really intense family matter happening. And all of a sudden, Brian's just there in the house and he's like, oh, the door was open. And there are many of these times. Uh, one of them was when they finally thought they would meet Jordan Catalano for the first time. And they opened the door and, oh, it's just Brian. <laughs> um, there was one episode where Patty thought she might be pregnant. And she's like stressed out. She's eating a bunch of chocolates. And I can't remember who she thinks it's going to be at the door, but it's just Brian. Um there's an episode where Sharon's dad has a heart attack and Graham is like going through an existential freak out this whole episode and he just can't be in the house and he needs to leave and he's storming out of the house is kind of a sounds like he's angry, but he's not. But he's he's just a flurry of emotion. He's running out the house and Patty's like, Graham, wait. And then, oh, Brian's right there in the doorway. OK, there's a build up to these last two. Because the mom winces when she's trying to have this important conversation with Graham about culinary school. And then I think this is when Brian lets himself in. And she goes, ah, Brian Krakow is here. Good. (laughs) And then there's an episode where there's a stressful situation, which I know you'll get to in your Dunzos, uh, where the mom is running out of the house. She's so stressed. She needs to go save the kids from this situation. And then Brian's at the door and she goes, what are you doing here? Oh, I was just, oh, you were just spit it out, Brian. <laughs> I, the, the fact that it kept happening and it kept being more intense and emotionally charged had me in stitches. I loved those moments. I live for those moments. What wonderful insight you have brought. Because, yes, I clocked all of those, but I wouldn't have, like, I didn't put them into a pattern like <laughs> you just did. No, there was a total buildup. There was, you know, you're right. You're right. I fully agree with that. Brian, to me, is such a pest sometimes. He just kind of inserts himself into a bunch of situations. And doesn't know what to do once he's inside of them. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have the capacity to let something evolve. Um, this is this might be this might be a controversial take. I did not like the actor who played Brian. I did not think he was good. Okay, I thought that he was a little too muted which i know is kind of brian like brian is repressed and 
goal-oriented, but anytime I feel like they gave him a moment to sort of elevate that or that he was frustrated or anything, he just didn't do anything with it. And maybe that's what they were looking for out of a Brian Krakow, somebody who's just kind of a wet blanket that anyone that could be thrown onto any situation and you'd barely like, dude, he is Mr. Cellophane from Chicago. 100%. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. And I think some moments were kind of sunk by the actor who played him. Yeah. I think that the way the show ends, it's with Angela knowing he wrote the love letter and so even though she kind of gets together with Jordan at the end, you can tell she's more into Brian than she's ever been. And I don't know if uh, that moment was sold to me by him, that she would mm-hmm. be into him all of a sudden after everything they've been through. Um, I get it. I mean, yeah, he's a wet blanket and he's not, he's very uptight though, you know, so in those emotional moments that maybe he should be more heightened. I think that he restrains himself because he's taught to be a good boy and good boys don't yell. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I don't really have a problem with what you've said. I appreciate that. Uh, what's your first Dunzo? My first Dunzo is the Krampus Award. And that goes to what is arguably the most depressing Christmas episode I've ever seen Oof. on TV. Yeah. Okay. Okay, let's dig into this. So the Christmas episode opens without the title sequence. We fade in, and Ricky's coughing up blood on the snow. And I was just like, Merry freaking Christmas. Here we go. And he's got a black eye that lasts him two episodes. Such a brutal black eye. Ricky has presumably been kicked out of his home right at Christmas time. He is sort of searching around for a place to stay. He nearly stays at uh, at the Chase's house, but they he kind of hears Angela's mom being like, he can't stay here forever. What is he doing here? We need to call his parents. And so he overhears that, which also happens another time a couple episodes later, but that's beside the point. So Ricky is basically living in this sort of abandoned warehouse that Angela needs to come visit so that she can rescue him. And again, he's just got this big, huge black eye. And he talks about how he doesn't belong anywhere. And everyone's just trying to save Ricky in time for the holidays. Meanwhile, He's being sort of followed by this woman who plays guitar on the street, who we find out later is the ghost of a girl who had been abandoned by her mother who froze to death in the snow maybe sometime earlier. Right, both Angela and Patty talk to her. I think the episode is called like Not So Precious Angels or something like that. Angels is in the title of it. Yeah, it's just this really sad let's save Ricky we're gonna find him at the church at the end of it and we might all go sing Christmas carols afterwards but it took a while to get there Ian what did you think of this Christmas episode it was kind of weird that it was bookended by religion because at the beginning of the episode I think Danielle is like 
why don't we go to church? And their parents are like, uh, I was raised one way, she was raised another, and, you know, they don't want to go to church. That's But they mm-hmm. dance around that. And then at the end, they all end up at this church with uh, Ricky maybe lighting a candle. And at, at the end, Ricky ends up staying with them. Um, but it's actually Jordan. We learn a lot about Jordan in that episode because... He finds Ricky begging, I think, outside of a, let's just say, Walgreens or 7-Eleven or whatever, uh, whatever the 94 equivalent is. <laughs> and he goes into Jordan's car and Jordan is like, yeah, my old man used to rough me up a lot. Um, I know a place you can stay if you need to. So it's Jordan that ends up dropping him off at the warehouse the parents find out about the warehouse by overhearing a conversation between Angela and Brian. And then they go to the police and the police just, well, in real life, they'd probably scatter the warehouse, but supposedly everybody's brought to a church for the night. It's like, Oh, great job, everyone. We, they don't live in a warehouse and they're at this church for one night. Now, where are they going to stay again? You know, it, yeah. it doesn't solve anything. It, it does ride the line pretty well, I think, between like white suburban parents trying to help but not knowing how to and being like, do we make the situation better? Do we make it worse? Do we do nothing? You yeah. know, and then when it comes to Ricky's storyline, uh, actually, the actor pretty much can't uh, Wilson Cruz pretty much cannot talk about this episode without crying because in his real life, his father was not talking to him at this point in his life. And his father started talking to him again after seeing this episode. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wilson Cruz is really incredible in this show. He brings so much warmth to it while also very much living in fear and uncertainty and sadness and all the other difficulties that this character needs to inhabit. And he's really remarkable. And this show and this episode really bummed me out, but he was exceptional in it. And yeah, I thought it was really well done. There was a lot of controversy, right, about a someone especially being under the age of 18 being a, a gay character on TV right and they get asked a lot about how difficult it was to film it knowing that this was the case because they knew what they were doing was a big deal and it was the pretty much the first time especially he's Puerto Rican he's not a white gay man like no you know he he's got an uphill battle to climb in the early to mid 90s um they said that they filmed a lot before they started airing episodes. And because they were in kind of a bubble, they were kind of protected. He felt protected. And all he had to do was be true to the character. So any big conversations or whatever that would come up from this or any backlash would come up later. He did not have to deal with it much while playing the character. Um, Another thing I want to point out was that in 1992, I believe, there was an investigation in Congress 
for airing a program with an adult gay man in it, not being used for some comic throw pillow. Mm-hmm. So literally only two years before this, the government was investigating why there would be a gay man on TV. Granted, it was paid for with public funds, but so this is a lot of progress in two years to to have this happen. And it was very risky. Mm-hmm. So I just want to bring that up. No, that's a great context. And the show does a really wonderful job with the Ricky character on not putting all of the weight of the cultural significance of his character's existence onto him. Totally. Totally. It's he, he he's a he's a person just like every other character and he is treated with the exact same respect that every single other character is given. And he's integral to their lives too. I mean, he's the most perceptive one out of any of them. He's the one that everybody turns to. It's true. He is yeah. We love and Ricky. he does the we dishes. Uh, Not many other people can say that. Ian, what is your second Dunzo award? Is that like a dig at Elise or something? (laughs) Someone can interpret that however they want to. My second award is the I also did that award, which goes to (laughs) Brian awkwardly asking out Delia to the dance, and then immediately Angela went over to Brian to use him to cover her own ego. And then Brian goes back on asking Delia to the dance because now Angela is going not as a date, but as a trio. And then he basically Delia is like, I'm not doing that. And she's out. And then Brian tricks Angela into going to the dance with him essentially. Yeah. Brian lies about weird stuff constantly throughout this show like even in the last episode i think jordan is walking up to angela's house and brian's like walking away from it and jordan's like hey is angela in there and brian's like no i didn't see her or i don't think so and it's like you just saw her and jordan's already walking up to the door like, what are you stopping here? What are you accomplishing by lying here? And he does that with this dance thing, too, where Angela clearly says, I want to go as a trio with you and Delia. And Brian doesn't say to Delia that this is going to be a trio. He's basically like, oh, I am I already forgot I made plans with somebody else. Yeah. You didn't have to lie about any of this, and now you're much more miserable for all of it. Although Delia yeah. rightfully is also mad at Angela because she knows what she's doing. Yeah, yeah. Delia's awesome, though. And Delia does come out one... of the show unscathed, doesn't she? <laughs> <laughs> the only person in the show. <laughs> she is not just, oh man, uh, in a heap of hormones by the end of it. Delia gets her big moment, though, later in that episode with the wonderful dance number that she does with uh, Ricky at the dance, which, ah, just to see pure joy and dance in that scene, it reminded me of Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion. I loved it. But the aspect of it where it's like, I did that too, I didn't exactly do the dance situation, but just to be like ready to be into somebody because the person that you are into isn't into you. And then the person that you're into 
shows just the tiniest bit of ankle emotionally. And you're like ready to just throw out this other perfectly nice person and, you know, go for the thing that you know is never going to happen. And you're an idiot, but you do it anyway. And, uh, you know, romantically, I, I've definitely been there at some point between 18 to 23, maybe even a couple times. John, what's... We're all idiots. Yeah. What's your second Dunzo? My second Dunzo is the Dead Poets Alimony Award. And that goes to Victor Racine. I like it. Thank you. So for some context, there is an episode where there is a substitute teacher in English class. His name is Victor Racine. He is the cool sub. He comes in and he's like, you don't need to be here. I don't have a lesson plan. We're just going to rap if you want. Everyone's like, okay, I like this guy. He, he, he speaks to us. He, he cares about what really matters. Well, I like the way he hooks in Jordan too. He's like, no, you can leave if you want, but there's one caveat. We're going to talk about you when you're gone. And then Jordan stays. I really like that. He is an objectively like funny and entertaining character. I mean, he, he offers anyone a toothpick. He throws their essays out of a window. He even gives Jordan like a Steinbeck novel. But there's this whole montage, too, where he, like, makes them read by candlelight and they read poems at random. And it leads to this huge thing about free speech when Sharon actually writes this very sort of saucy haiku about her boyfriend, Kyle. But it's all random and anonymous. So when it gets published in the Lit Mag, there's this whole sort of the school's trying to censor us thing. And when this thing comes out. Vic, who the students affectionately call him, he leaves. And so we're like, oh, principal must have fired him because he published this uh, saucy haiku. And then we find out that Victor Racine had a subpoena to appear in court for failing to pay child support for a family he abandoned months before. And I was just like, what? This is what's happening? I like I knew it wasn't going to be so like clear cut because of how the show had developed before that but to have that be the turn I loved it. Yeah, loved that it. was one of the many moments in the show where Natalie was in the other room and I went, "Oh, oh Natalie. Vic Vic's not a cool guy. He's a piece of shit." <laughs> the other ones were usually Jordan Catalano related like, "Oh, oh, you're not going to believe what Jordan did." <laughs> But yeah, what a twist, man. What a twist. And then when, and then Angela goes to like Vic's apartment cause he's in the phone book and he, she's like, you seem like kind of a bad person. And he's like, that's what the yuppies want you to think. Quit school and drive around the country. And she's like, uh, no, I'm okay. He's like, I just- tear your gingerbread house down or something like that. <laughs> and the episode narration ends with her making like a pretty good gingerbread house metaphor that I can't remember. Yeah. The disillusionment of people who are like mysterious and sort of deep in these big ways that break conventions, I thought was really effective. And the teachers on this show too, just to give them a quick shout out are really interesting. 
and they don't make them one note. The other English teacher that eventually replaces Vic becomes a major fixture because he essentially takes in Ricky from his being unhoused and the English teacher even has a husband at home that he is sort of hiding kind of because he doesn't want to get fired because that's definitely part of the culture then too. Oh yeah. I mean, I had a teacher who retired after my freshman year of high school who, even though everybody knew was gay, did not find, was not comfortable coming out to everyone until he was on his way out. And these were people he loved, but he just, in the suburban environment that we grew up in, in 2006 or 2007, he could not live openly as a gay man, which, you know, this was 13 years after the show. Yeah. It, uh, you felt, uh, that teacher's pain. Yeah. I mean, his and job was at stake. Like you could yeah. lose your job, his new job. Like he just started like a couple, you know, months earlier. Yeah. And yeah, it's one of those things that the show is, it's a little prophetic on, like it was a problem at the time. And a lot of the problems that they bring up in the show have only gotten worse. Like, uh, Winnie brought up a stat that teenage homelessness is up like, I'm not going to throw out a percentage. It's way up from 1994. So they were ahead of the curve on talking about that. Even with the school shooting thing too, there was a line in that episode that almost felt like it was written now reacting to school shootings pre-Columbine. Like Patty at one point says, I have to worry about our kids getting shot in school. I can't believe it's come to this. And you're like, well, it's, this is going to be even a bigger issue. Yeah, get ready. And yeah, that episode ends with the kids walking through metal detectors now because it feels like, you know, something big has shifted. And well, you know, at least we've solved that problem and it's not in the news every day. And we live in a nope. society much like the Joker said. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, living in a society, <laughs> let's, take, <laughs> I, I, let's take a quick commercial break and we'll come back to talk about why the show got canceled. And now a word from our sponsors. So why the show got canceled, um, some people think it's pretty cut and dry. Other people have their theories. It definitely did not have the best ratings. It started off okay and slowly tapered off throughout its run. Um, like I said, there were 22 episodes ordered, but they had to write the 19th episode knowing that it was at least the last episode of the season if not the mm. series. So actually episode 19 is written a little ambiguously as if like we can be satisfied with the conclusion yet also there's plenty set up to continue into season two. Um, I don't know about you, but I was pretty unsatisfied with it. I was watching it as if like knowing that it was the last episode and I just, 
felt in my gut like, oh, this is not how they wanted this even season to end. Now, she had a good quote about um, it was a show about adolescence and the show ended in its adolescence, which I think is Uh, her trying to, you know, make some poetry out of it, which I appreciated. Oh, we haven't even brought up how she was nominated for a Tony for writing the book of Wicked, John, in 2004. Oh, wow. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And you love Wicked, and I hate Wicked. I, but that's more about I the source I, material I, for I, me, I, not the songs. I like Wicked. It's not one of my favorites. I I, I enjoy Wicked very much. Right. And I, I, there are, I don't like that they go to college together, okay? It's like the whole thing. <laughs> But like this is not the wicked it's podcast. Funny. Let's the talk songs about are my good, so-called life. But they shouldn't be going to college together, okay? Uh it shouldn't be normal. It should be fanciful. Um okay, you keep talking and we're not talking my so-called life. We have kept these people hostage for two plus hours. Let's bring it on. So home. there's also this big aspect of Claire Danes and the teenagers in general. They all had a difficult show life balance because of its shooting schedule. Like it was a grueling process for them. And there's a lot of reports that Claire Danes didn't even want to do a season two. Uh, Winnie has talked about this and said that while those reports have been exaggerated, she is glad that the show ended while they all still enjoyed doing it. Mm. And in her golden globes, not the speech, but like afterwards when all the, uh, journalists are asking her questions she has like four movies that she's working on after the award ceremony like she's like oh i'm doing this movie and after that i'm doing this movie and after that i'm doing this movie so her star was on the rise and i think between the show's low ratings and the fact that she could probably make a lot more money in movies and also, she did quit acting for three years to go to college. So mm-hmm. she's busy, and I, I totally get that. But I can see why fans would be mad at her for this, because um, she does, I think, get some backlash for this. But, hey, you know, she mm-hmm. was like 15 or something. She has the right to make her own decisions. Um, the other thing is that the subject matter of the show was so heavy that they just theorized they could not find much momentum not just to gain a new audience but also to market the show to get new people to watch yeah um like it was a very fragile marketing atmosphere with this show and then i had one podcast theorize that it was because ricky came out in the last episode but i would say that's probably more of he came out in the last episode because she knew it was probably the last episode. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot more sense. The last few episodes of the show, I want to kind of put a spotlight on because it did feel like they might have been spinning their wheels a little bit. And it did make me a little wary of what a season two would look like. The second to last episode to me was so weird and off balance with like the rest of the show. Was that the cabin episode? That's the cabin episode. So this is, this is an episode where half of the episode takes place with uh, Graham and Patty going to a B and B 
in the mountains with his brother and his brother's new girlfriend. And like Patty gets like rip roaring drunk at dinner and basically gets mad at Graham for being in business with Hallie Lowenthal. And then the other half, Rayanne, it goes to the Chase's house, which is empty because they the parents are gone. And she like handcuffs herself to a bed frame using some sort of sex handcuffs that Sharon's parents had given Patty to like spice up their weekend or whatever. And it like ended in this like 20 minute montage of them like cleaning up the house. And I was like, what TV show is this? It felt so different from everything that we had seen before. It's so much more like madcap. And there was a whole scene where Sharon's mom comes in to like retrieve the handcuffs and they like make Rayanne fake sick because that would be a reason why she couldn't get out of the bed. It felt so much more like madcap and weird. And it didn't seem like the actors even knew what they were doing, doing these things. It was a different vibe and it's not quite the penultimate episode that we'd wish for. Mm -hmm. I do worry that that could have been sort of indicative of that point that you made about them coming up with continuously fresh material going into future seasons. Right. I think that it served the parents' storyline a lot more than it served the kids' storyline. The kids just kind of felt like, I thought maybe it was an excuse to get Angela and Rayanne back together, but they weren't even talking at the end of episode 19. So it didn't really do much to advance their friendship at all. Um, it felt like a studio note, honestly, more than anything. It felt like we need more things to happen. What if, we, what and, if it was more fun? What if there were sex yeah. handcuffs? What if it was just a little bit like a little bit risque, a little, little, little fun like that? And yeah, Dude. there was just something about, especially Claire Danes's performance in that episode. She was like laughing at weird times and none of it felt believable or grounded in any way. There was a weird I joke about uh, Sharon's boyfriend was in the house and uh, Brian was trying to get a handcuff key to handcuff her. And she's like, Brian, it's too big. It won't fit. And they said this like three yeah. times and the teenage boys are like chuckling and it, it did feel very out of character. I guess I didn't think about it too much, but um, I totally get where you're coming from. Just about it went the, on too long. It just felt like this is the direction that they might have unfortunately been pushed in mm -hmm. if they were to cave to other people's intentions that were not true to their original ones. And that worried me. I completely get what you're talking about here. And um, I just want to shout out there is out there what season two would have looked like. Uh, Winnie Holtzman says it in a great interview that she has on the My So-Called Life Rewatch podcast from 2018. and Which is, I'm guessing the whole uh, podcast is about as long as this one. It's as long as this like episode. the entire season. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so if you want to see what season two would have been looked like, that's like a 32-minute episode. I say just go listen to that because we're running out of time here. Uh, John, I have a quick burning question for you. 
And mm-hmm. that is, how do you get yeah. away with the two apparition episodes while still staying grounded? That is Angela seeing Nikki Driscoll in an earlier episode, and then later Patty and Angela both seeing the frozen to death uh, unhoused teenager who plays the guitar. <laughs> That's hot. You don't, because I didn't think either of those things really worked that well. I was very much taken out of it with both the Nikki Driscoll thing, which, side note, Nikki Driscoll looked so much like a young John Cusack that I actually thought that they got John Cusack. No, John, he's the guy that gets Breckenmeyer to start gambling at the beginning of Rat Race, obviously. (laughs) Richie. I did not notice that. He's got a pretty boy face. He does. He does. Yeah, that episode was weird just for a little bit of context. It's a Halloween episode. They break into the school, they being Angela, Rayanne, Ricky, and Brian, I think. And Angela just like follows around this guy, Nikki Driscoll, who had died doing some weird stunt in the school like in the 60s and so she's like trying to convince him to turn his life around even though we basically understand that he's a stand-in for Jordan Catalano throwing his school career away it didn't work for me it felt too out of it and again this was something that she interacted with and same with like that angel episode like if she's just like seeing this person okay fine but the fact that patty did too i was like okay we're getting a little too it's a wonderful life here right now and this doesn't work um i had problems with the nikki thing but the angel thing i actually was okay with i thought it was sweet enough Mm -hmm. it it drew the parallel between the mom and the daughter it was fine it was weird but it was fine it felt more like a device than definitely a plot point ian i've got a burning question for you where was tino that's hot tina was off screen up to all kinds of shenanigans um (laughs) actually to be honest i didn't even totally notice the tino of it all until i was researching the show and everyone kept asking about tino so it was actually something that went over my head just like you with the oh it's brian thing Literally every time somebody mentioned Tino, I I laughed because it felt so purposeful. So Tino is this sort of guy who is friends with Rayanne and Jordan, who is basically some sort of magical person. He at one point was the singer of the Frozen Embryos brand. He also gets people drugs and gets people into clubs, but we never, ever, ever see Tino. Right. Winnie described him as not quite a criminal, but almost. He's just the friend that everyone has that if you need to find something, he can get it. And so she. That's Tino. But he was a writing device. You know? Yeah. He filled in a lot of plot holes. Which that writing device worked for. Totally. Ian, any lingering thoughts? Uh, we're, we're at two plus hours. I, I truly, we... I don't know where to start at my lingering thoughts. I'll just <laughs> leave it at, uh, I thought this was an incredible show. I truly thought I learned more about my wife by watching it. I felt like I learned more about 
myself and the people that I was around in high school and after and just people in general. It's a really, really special show. All of it's on Hulu if anyone wants to watch it. We both very much recommend that you do. One lingering thought I have is just I want to reinforce that this show is so good at showing people being awful, but we know their reasons for it, so we give them the benefit of the doubt for the most part, which I think that sort of humanity storytelling is very rare. I think we usually have characters and find a reason to root for them or to hate them. And I think this show does a great job of showing us that people can be both. Fully agree. Ian, where can people find us? Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. You can email us any suggestions for future episodes or any thoughts. Tell us why my so-called life is far more polished than Freaks and Geeks. That's an email I'd like to read. Uh, Oneanddonepod at gmail.com. And uh, you can check out our website, oneanddonetv.com. It's nice. It's really well made by my wife. And this is our last episode of January. Before we move into a very special event that I'm excited about, we're going into Quibuary, everybody. That's right. Shortest month of the year with the shortest shows ever made. Yes. Quibi had produced a bunch of one-season shows in its very short lifespan, and we are going to dedicate the next four weeks to episodes about Quibi shows. More details on that. Until then, I think the bell is rung, and it's time to go home. Brought to you by Lack of Hustle Media.